Are you hungover? Uh, a little bit. Yeah, but a little, like yeah. I think I'm just thirsty. Yeah. Are you hungover? Uh yeah. I'm more croaky. We drank beer. We, we drank, did. We drank a lot of beer. We did. This is a reunion episode, by the way. We're here in person. Steve came to visit me. How was the couch? Uh, yeah, it was comfy. It's a couch bed, a futon, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I will. Will you? No. Oh. Yeah, we're in London for big, exciting reasons. Yeah. Well, we've yet to go do them, but hopefully it all goes to plan. Yeah. It should be fine. Unless, like, Dari and the author is pretending to have re- written the book. And it's actually, like, ghostwritten by his dog or something like that. How Orwellian. Oh, is it? No. no. <laughs> just, I feel like that's going to be the interview is me going, ooh, how Orwellian. And then <laughs> well, Dorian going, well, it's not. Okay. That's, but but that itself is Orwellian. It's not. <laughs> uh, 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 you're gaslighting me. Is that Orwellian? I don't know. I don't really know what gaslighting is. Isn't it just... It's when you're tricking someone into believing something that's not true okay. to manipulate them. To, to, you, to any particular ends or just to fuck with them? Control. And ah, manipulation. Okay. It's usually used these days... Um, in the feminist context because apparently it's a thing that men do an awful lot to women that sounds about right we're kind of shit yeah and I do it all the time to you oh fuck that explains so much uh, what are we doing what's the list I have nothing I have no notes or anything in front of me uh, we are going to introduce the fantastic episode that we're about to record oh I have to do my thing you have to do the thing oh no <laughs> We've received enough donations. We received more than enough donations. People really wanted to hear this happen. Yeah. So cast your mind back to it was the last episode, right? Yeah. Well, where I don't, I can't remember how it came about, but we somehow ended up in the position where if we said that if we received enough donations, five, I think five, that I would give a definition of what tantric sex is something because I said that your seagulls in, in your chimney were having tantric sex. It was something about sting. And yeah, something about sting. Yeah. Sting is involved. I said to Google tantric sex and saying, okay. Um, and then yeah. Some, someone immediately donated, like even before we stopped recording, they somehow knew yeah. and they donated enough donations to spell out tantric. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's happening. It's happening. <laughs> Mammy, if you're listening right now, I know you are, I know you really like the show and you're very proud of your little boy for, for the, the fun project he does with his friend, Steve, but please, for the love of God, if you ever had any love in your heart for me, you will just turn this episode off. Well, I'm sure your mom knows that you've like had sex before. Um, yeah, but that's not the same as describing tantric sex. Have you had tantric sex before? <laughs> this idea is going to happen. We just talk about what tantric sex is first. I haven't, because okay. I don't even know where to begin. Well, at the beginning. At the beginning. Okay, I don't have a, I don't have any notes in front of me, so th- some of this could be wrong. But tantric sex, from my understanding, it's based on a thing called neo-tantra, which is like a modern Western interpretation of some ancient 5,000-year-old Buddhist and Hindu practices relating to sex and the body. Okay. And I think it roughly, it's it's something like sacred sexuality or spiritual sexuality is what like neo, or what Tantra means. But somewhere along the lines, like most Western adaptions of things, we've kind of just usurped it and just turned it to our own needs, in this case, having sex for a long time. And it's basically just a more... Um, having sex for a long time. That's kind of like the the byproduct of it. You have sex for a long time. Yeah, like so the, the reason I said Sting is because there was a period, I think in the 90s, where Sting kept bringing up an interview so he could have sex for like seven hours with his wife because he used this, tan- this tantric sex practice. Why would you even want to? <laughs> Sting, I don't know. He had a brand to maintain. I don't know. Okay, so it's basically 
it's like it's you, you bring in um like it's a whole lot of indians teaching westerners how to have sex for a long time and it's it's westerners adopting these old practices it's stuff like it's a whole lot of westerners going to india and telling them make us have sex for a long time <laughs> yeah. just walking up to some random poor fella on the street walking to work <laughs> hey do you do you hey, know about this you have tantric sex and the guy's like, not again <laughs> <laughs> fucking God's sick sake. of this shit <laughs> yeah but just use stuff like mindfulness and meditation and to, to bring in like basically the goal is there's no real goal you're not like rushing to an end end in quotes <laughs> um you're just there to like enjoy it for what it is that's and then, <laughs> that took a few goes you think, hey, hey. Oh, hey. but that's kind of it yeah and then apparently i think um oh yeah well you definitely haven't had tantric sex because you know you, you, that's why they call them two minute richie <laughs> who says that cold open richie who says two minute Richie? Kate. Uh, <laughs> constantly. Does Kate listen to this podcast? <laughs> okay, you should probably move on. Okay. So to our people who donated, I Let's hope that was worth the money. To a happier, happier end. Let's talk about 1984. <laughs> oh, God. Do you want to set up? 1984 is a book written by George Orwell. Mm-hmm. But we're, and so we're going to interview George Orwell? I hope not. Okay. Well, I don't, I'm, yeah, that's been mentioned a couple of times when I told people we were building up to this. Mm-hmm. And I'm simultaneously like excited and terrified about the fact that we, uh, the, the idea of interviewing George Orwell, because he's dead. Yeah. He died in 1940. Nine? Nine, a couple of months after 84. Yeah, came a couple out. of months after he wrote 1984. Mm-hmm. 1984. I've also been testing out to see how iconic it is because I kind of just took it for granted that everyone knew. Mm-hmm. But there are a good few people that don't exactly know That's tr- what it is. That's true. But I feel like but even through other pop culture exactly, touch points, they're aware of Essentially, for anyone who doesn't know, it is the iconic dystopian novel. Yeah. It is the, the template that everyone has followed since it has been written to describe a future world or alternative world where things have gone to shit yeah. and the lads are in charge. Yeah, a lot of things that are now just like standard tropes in yeah. dystopia were established as so, original concepts yeah. by George Orwell in this book. Probably the biggest one is Big Brother. Yeah, exactly. So Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. Yeah, so the exactly. reason that you know about a TV show called Big Brother where you're watching people all the time is because in 1984, the, the leader of this, of Oce- Oceana. Oce- yeah, Oceana. Oceana. Uh, the Oceania. Oceania. Yeah. The evil country that's ruled by Ing Sok the evil ideology is Big Brother and he's like this guy in a poster who's always watching you. Yeah. And he's on these things called telescreens, which mm. are kind of like a, t- a television screen in your house, but it's a two-way thing. Yeah. So you are being fed very specific messages by the party meant to kind of placate you and slowly brainwash you into into being sympathetic for the party. But then also they can monitor you through that yeah. and they can keep an eye on all of your so you have to like, he, he's always, Winston, the main character, is always describing how his facial expressions are always controlled. Yeah. Like, oh, I had the, the, the facial expression of lightly smiling indifference when doing my exercises. Yeah. Because if you smile the wrong way or don't smile at all, you might get vaporized. Yeah, exactly. That feeds into the idea of thought crime and the thought police. This idea of you cannot hold in your mind any sort of unorthodox idea or, or opinion that goes against the party. Mm. Um, and the thought police are the force who are constantly on the lookout for that and will and if they find out that you are guilty of thought crime you get vaporized you it's just called vaporized just, yeah, you get, you're just, just gone basically one, it just happened to his friend in the, the part that I'm reading in the book and uh, he just doesn't show up for work and then the next day he's been he's been taken off the list of committee memberships he was on an unperson an unperson he yeah. never existed he's been yeah. written out of history and Winston's job is working for the Ministry of Truth mm-hmm. where he has to rewrite history to make it 
appropriate to what the current party line is. Yeah. So that whenever people were to reference history, you'd be, the, the world would be like, no, that never happened. This is yeah. how it, it's always been like this. It's always been like that. Oceania has always been a war with Eurasia. Yeah. And Ingsoc has always been in control and things always yeah. go to their plan. So the reason that we're talking about 1984 mm. is not because we're going to talk about 1984. No. Exactly. No. We are going to talk to an author who has written a book about 1984. Like a biography of a book. Biography of a book. And also of the man as of, well. A bit. Of Orwell. Yeah. Dorian Linsky. Dorian Linsky. Another podcaster. Yeah, he's a, a podcaster. podcaster. He hosts Romania, co-hosts Romaniacs with two other cool dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also a Guardian music journalist. And somehow in his spare time, he's managed to write this absolutely fantastic book. Yeah. Called The Ministry of Truth. Named so, after the ministry that Winston works for. Yeah. So do where we miss it before we go into the actual interview, are we missing anything else? Um, context for the book. Con- we'll, um, we'll talk about that when we get in there, I guess. Yeah. Sorry, there's going to be spoilers probably because <laughs> if you like either if you if you don't know what 1984 is and what it's about by now, it's probably because you haven't read it. So yeah. don't worry about going to read it. It's fine. It's like knowing the Chern- Chernobyl blew up, blew up and still enjoying that TV show or the Titanic sank and Leonardo DiCaprio died. Have you not seen Titanic, the sequel to Titanic? <laughs> <laughs> there's a post credit scene at the end of Titanic where it just, just comes back, back up out, back up out of water reattaches yeah but now this time he's got he's got a vendetta against that iceberg <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's basically the plot of Titanic <laughs> the sequel to Titanic uh, man people have to stop giving James Cameron money for things uh, the characters Winston's the main character mm-hmm. Julia is his girlfriend mm-hmm. O'Brien is an inner party member who are like the big wigs yeah. who Winston thinks is on his side, but turns out absolutely, definitely isn't. Absolutely not. No, he's uh, a... Goldstein is Big Brother's nemesis. He's enemy of the state. Enemy of the one. state. He's basically like he's the the baddie that the state references as as you got to be afraid of him and his people. Mm-hmm. And the proles are. This is the hardest part to understand, and I hope we're going to talk about this. With yeah, Dorian. they're like the proletariat. Ninety percent of people in this world aren't part of the party and just live almost relatively normal lives but the best I can make of it is that they're like the industrial working class yeah. and they're just this mass of yeah. drones doing the most menial stuff to keep yeah. Ingsoc's society afloat Yeah, but they have no say in Ingsoc's no, no role in, within Ingsoc's actual agenda and they don't want it no they're just happy to sing the song and they actually Ingsoc talk creates. about Winston says they could literally overthrow yeah, Ingsoc if they wanted just because out of sheer numbers but they're so placated and controlled I'm going to talk we're definitely going to talk about that with Dorian because there's yes. a lot of interesting bits about that um, I think that's pretty much it there's the ministry of, there's four ministries that run the country we've mentioned truth they're the ones that control the narrative control mm-hmm. the history there's plenty who are the like economics they, they run they run the economics there's peace yeah. which is the ministry of war <laughs> and the ministry of love which is like law enforcement yeah that kind of thing police, yeah. that's where you don't want to go and room 101 which is the iconic room that Winston is taken to to be tortured yeah by O'Brien I think that's it that's and then just it. the idea that the, the world is basically these three massive super oh, yeah. states yeah Oceania, Eurasia, and East Asia. Yeah, and they're constantly at war. Yeah. With two, yeah, and they're making alliances and stopping. And then whenever they decide to not be at war with one another, they rewrite the history to say, no, we've, we've always, always been at war. We've yeah. always been at war. We're actually always been at war with East Asia. Yeah. And then, yeah, so, so on and so forth. Um, I think that's all the context we need. So let's... Let's just do it. Let's just cut to the interview. Let's just go to the interview. And... Take it away. Tantric sex. <laughs> Speaking of which, I do like how you didn't go full method with your apartment and turn it into a 1984 style derelict. No, no, it has to be. <laughs> to try and get, you know, get in the headspace. The place doesn't smell like cabbage, which is very nice. <laughs> the victory dinner is delicious, though. Thank Absolutely. You. Should we get into it? The book was 70 years old on the 8th of June. The question we were thinking of, why now? Why did you, apart from that 
moment to hit that anniversary what was it that sparked it in your head they're like this is this is the moment to bring out a biography of 1984 uh it's it's lots of things because it's a kind of i think it's a lots of things book um because i like i like books where you use some like the last one which is history of protest songs Mm. the point was each even though each chapter had one song you would have songs that were kind of partnered with it. You'd have other songs around it. You'd have the whole context. It was, it was just kind of like a way in. And so this actually came out of an interest in, um, I think it was like I was reading about uh, a particular um, utopian novel and I realised I didn't really understand the evolution of the dystopian novel. And so much of what we think of a dystopian novel now is 1984. And I was like, well, where did that come from? And um I've, yeah, I've always liked Orwell and not just, the, you know, those, those the sort of classic novels, but also the essays. And so it was just a lot of things swimming around. And then around the time that I was trying to get, I was thinking maybe I can do a proposal, um, Trump got elected. Mm-hmm. And then literally I think I went, I went out for a, a drink with a friend to say, what do you think of this idea? And then January 2017, and then a week later, Kellyanne Conway used the phrase alternative facts, which is where, you know, it was start where I started the introduction of the book. And suddenly like sales in 1984 went up 10,000%. And I thought, oh, right. Okay. Now there's this. Yeah. Um, and then having decided to do that, I um basically there was this anniversary and I thought, oh, I should really try and hit that and, and fair play to the publishers because normally you would have much, I would have had longer to write it they would have definitely had longer to put it all together. Mm. They, they put it in. I worked out that they actually put, they actually published it faster than Orwell's publishers published 1984 <laughs> by, by a few weeks. Wow. Um, because both, both me and both me and Orwell filed in, uh, filed in December. All right. And um, my book was out um, a few days earlier than, than his. That was notable at the time that they, you know, that they'd really kind of moved fast. And so it was one of those tricky things. I thought, well, okay, I could spend longer on this, but then I would miss that anniversary. And anniversaries do have a certain sort of power. Mm. And another thing that I realized much later in the process than I should have was that the 70th anniversary meant that not the year 1984 fell exactly in the middle. So it was actually, you almost had two, you have two 35 year spans. And that suddenly, that really brought me up short because so much of it, for its first 35 years was heading towards 1984 and what will the world be like? And I'm thinking, well, we are 35 years away from that. Mm. Um, so it, it all lined up, but there was not, um, there was not a, a careful plan. And a lot of this stuff just sort of occurred to me as I was writing. The term Orwellian, you, you do spend a good bit talking about that, both at the start of the book and then as we're talking about the legacy of 84. Um, but do you think, that has become so overused that it's almost cliche and not useful. I think this is actually a level beyond cliche that very few works ever reach, which so it is it comes back around almost. It just sort of transcends. It transcends cliche. I, mean, I think you could probably look at certain phrases in the in the in the you know in the language now, or certain reference points, or certain lines uh, from you know like. 90s comedies there's certain lines from like you know father ted or the day to day and you mm. think at some point they were cliched mm. and now they're just you know they are as you'd say your memes or just reference points that everybody understands and so 1984 certainly went through a point 
very early on in the really in the first half of the fifties, where it went from being quite a cool thing to reference to being a very obvious thing to reference. And that happened in basically for the first five years. And so then it just becomes embedded in the language. And so I don't think the problem is that it's a cliche. I think it, well, the problem is, I suppose, as, as all I would say is that a cliche, you know, is, is a thought stopper. And, and that the, the reason he thought that bad writing denoted bad thinking was because every time you use a preset phrase, you're not really thinking through what you're trying to say. And so the, a word like Orwellian, or indeed many of the, you know, Big Brother or whatever, they get applied in a really unthinking way. And if you just thought about them for 30 seconds, you would go, oh, this isn't, this isn't actually the right mm. context for this. This is not actually what he meant. And that became a, a kind of a conscious motive throughout the book was to always point out to people what Orwell was drawing on what he was thinking, what he meant. And that's not to say, you know, because I did, I did study English literature and um, and obviously one of the things that you're, you're taught is that the author's intent is not the be all and end all and, mm. and, and books have their own life and you're allowed to sort of read them and critically in all kinds of directions. But I did think, well, we should at least know what Orwell was thinking, what he was trying to say. And of course, a word like Orwellian is he didn't think of that. No, of course not. Be very egotistical if he was. <laughs> and I don't think it was even, I'm not Wells sure it was used in his life. No, it wasn't even used in his lifetime. Oh. No. So, whereas I think Wellesian was used in H.G. Wells' lifetime because he he lived long enough. Yeah. You have good contrasts in the book, actually, between the two. I think it's, it's almost, I don't know if it was entirely intentional, but it's almost like this is Wells or Wells was of a similar bent and the same kind of like message he was writing. Uh, it will not even the same message, but certainly the same kind of genre and like political writings and, and science mm-hmm. fiction kind of stuff, but how it fell apart for him as he almost lived too long. <laughs> but we didn't get that with Orwell. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that just only occurred, you know, quite a way into the book was I calculated on what, if if Wells had lived exactly as long as Orwell, on what day would he have died? Mm. And I think it turns out he would have died in 1911, by which time he would have written basically all of the books that he is remembered for, both fiction and nonfiction, it would have been the sort of pinnacle of his achievement. But but he didn't. And because he was somebody that always wanted to, he act- actively set out to predict the future, unlike Orwell, even though people obviously think Orwell did try and predict the future. Mm. That wasn't really the point. But Wells did. And also Wells wanted to have a huge influence on the life of politics. And Orwell really wasn't, um, he really wasn't interested in getting involved in, he knew, or well knew that he was not the kind of person that was going to enjoy getting involved in um, committees and sitting down with politicians and trying to work out policy and all that. And Wells also was not the kind of person who could do that, but he didn't know that. And so he would keep getting himself into situations which for a different personality might've been promising and then blowing it, alienating everybody Walking out and a half. Well, they f- they fell out with each other, Wells and Orwell, and then they fell out with each other. Yeah. I think the, the quote that I remember you it was like a, something like, "Oh, I, I didn't write like that, you shit," or something. Read like my that. early work, yeah. you shit, you shit yeah. which is great. <laughs> I think it's a great. Any author can use that line. Yeah. <laughs> um, That's the forward. <laughs> Just drilling more into Orwell's personality and who he was as a person around the time he's writing the book. Where would you position him on the ideological spectrum? And how maybe did that change over time? I think he was quite settled by that point because if you if you sort of track his political thought up until the beginning of the Second World War, 
there's quite a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of phases, which, which I explain in the book and I won't go through all of them now, but he was, he definitely had a sense of himself being on the left, mm-hmm. but not ideological. And so he didn't really want to sign up to anybody else's version of the left. And he had this great kind of, he was never a communist, but he had this sort of great break with communism um, in the Spanish Civil War because he just saw the way that the um, the Stalinists behaved. And then he saw the way that supporters of Stalin endorsed like, you know, things that he knew to be untrue and knew to be sort of fatally untrue. That is the kind of lie, if you're, if you're alleging that a certain left-wing group is working with Franco, then you basically license people to kill mm. members of that group. And it's, if it's a complete lie, then people are dying for a lie. So this was a huge break. But then he was a pacifist mm-hmm. and wrote a novel expressing his pacifism coming up for air. And then just on the, on the, uh, the eve of the Nazi-Soviet pact, he, really, he decided, no, you can't be, I can't be a pacifist anymore. Um, and then became quite sort of anti-pacifist and then sort of ended up with this revolutionary patriotism idea, which you get in The Lion and the Unicorn, which was really, even though people quote it a lot now, it's important to remember that it was a book written to encourage people on the left to support the war effort. So there was a real kind of propagandistic intent behind the book, even though it's full of wonderful observations about the English character and stuff. It was a, for a specific purpose. And so by the time he's thinking about the book, which he starts really taking notes for in 1943, he's an anti-Stalinist, anti-fascist, against conservatism, even though he had lots of small C conservative leanings, but against kind of mainstream conservatism. So he he was for what he called democratic socialism. It was his own particular set of preoccupations. Well, but then I actually think a lot of people, I think even now, when you, when you have people call themselves socialists, there's a lot, there's a huge range of what people really mean by socialism. Sure. But it did mean that he, you know, he, he did support the left of the Labour Party, um, but he was a supporter. And when people assumed that, particularly in America, uh, assumed that 1984 was somehow a kind of satirical attack on the Labour government, he explicitly came out and said, no, I support mm. the Labour government. He was kind of a critical friend. He was a critical friend of anyone, of individuals and of political parties. But he was still a friend. He was still a supporter. Um, but I just think he he was such an he was such an individual thinker that basically it was absolutely impossible, really, for any politician to kind of get his you know wholehearted support because it would it would he'd always be just like oh, I'd have done it that way. You touched there on the misinterpretation of 1984. There's a lot, you mentioned in the book, the, a novel that claim, it's been claimed by socialists, conservatives, anarchists, liberals, Catholics, libertarians. Hmm. And I was just wondering if you could offer any more insight into like that broad spectrum appeal and how mu- so many people can find so many different things in it simultaneously. Well, the, I think it says something about his like, his moral prestige, that if you look at the, in the chapter I do about the 1950s and sort of the, the early phase of the Cold War, at the same time, he was being written about as a kind of moral I think the phrase is like a moral genius because he, he was very, obviously he was anti-imperialist, anti-racist, anti-fascist, anti-communist. So he was just acclaimed as this sort of moral exemplar and everybody except basically Stalinists wanted him on their side. And they would go through strange sort of contortions because he, he, he wrote many times about not, didn't like the Catholic Church, really didn't like the Catholic Church. There's references in 1984 um, to O'Brien as being like a priest. Mm. There's, there's quite a lot of... Um, 
you know, sort of embedded criticisms of Catholicism. And yet one of the first biographies of Orwell was by a Catholic writer who wanted to claim, um, he wanted to claim that he was sort of pro-Catholic and was just sort of reading him completely against the grain. Um, and then later in the, the, and Vietnam, there were people that claimed he would have opposed the war and people who claimed he would have supported the war. And you get to the 80s and people that claimed he would have been a neoconservative and see the Iraq war, people that said he would have been against the war, so supported the war. And it's just, there's a particular quality to Orwell that people want him to uh, sort of approve of them, they want his ghost to approve of them. And so therefore they have all kinds of contortions. Although now I think you've got a lot of people that actually have no real sense of who he was. I've seen a few Twitter battles that you've been having since the book came out. Well, I've got two, um, I've got two sort of principles there, which is one, don't, I don't claim to set in the book to, to, to know what he would have thought about political things that are happening now. And I could easily have done that. If I wanted to, I could easily assemble enough quotes and go, well, clearly he would have opposed Brexit. But I thought that would be cheap and dishonest because mm. who, knows? who knows, the political situation is so different. So if somebody claims as some... One journalist did. There's no way he would have approved of me too. It's just nonsense. <laughs> that was one in particular. I think I was yeah. talking about. And I think you can. I think you can push back on that and go. That's nonsense. It's it's, it's nonsense. And the other thing I'll push back on is when there's um, false quotes mm. attributed to him. And so I think in both those cases, I'm, I'm Russians in particular. To was there one a part of the the Trump campaign? Yeah. yeah. One of them was disseminated by Russians, but then other one, but it had been whizzing around before. It was pushed by Russian, but it was not invented by Russians. It was a, it was one of a handful of unattributed, um, or just misattributed quotes that have actually been attached to Orwell's name sometimes for, for decades, but he just didn't say them. And so I think I, legitimately I can go, this is not true, mm. given the title and subject of my book. Yes. <laughs> um, I, I think it's fine to say this is not true. Um, when somebody has just got an opinion that's different, um, I don't want to be kind of an Orwell policeman barging in to every thread because it's like <laughs> opinions. Opinion is legitimate. I just think it's important for people to get um, the facts right. I'm hesitant to ask this question now since you have said <laughs> you have said that you don't want to be the the, the 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 final disseminator of what you think Orwell would think of current issues. But in terms of he was part of intellectual and moral battles of the left back then. Mm. And that is definitely something that's occurring now. There's, mm. there's big arguments about how, what is the best way to approach um, holding left-wing political views in the age of Brexit, right. Trump, all these bits. Um, and one in particular is, I guess, the idea of where does, where does the line for free speech and allowing people platforms to t say things right. you don't agree with. Do you think he would have anything to say or think about that? Because I know he was, Free speech and access to information and making up your own mind probably would have been a big thing. Well, for I think him. the good, I mean, the great thing with Orwell is because he had to work so much, um, he had to write so much, uh, so many articles, and he was, um, you know, active in the Freedom Defense Committee after the war. So a lot of this stuff is on the record. So basically, the distinction I make is I won't say what he would have thought, mm. but I say what he did think mm -hmm. at the time about these issues. And it seemed to me that he was very pro-free speech unless it was a danger to, at that point, like a danger to the state, a danger to the, to the nation. Um, now, of course, you're talking about, well, there are forms of free speech that are in danger to particular groups. That's not a way that he would have thought at the time. So you, it's sort of, we go, well, would he have extended that? Because mm, um, identity politics, I guess, wasn't really a thing for his era. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, and so if somebody on some, basically somebody who was like pro Nazi at that point, it, it, that was a danger to the state. It wasn't considered just a danger to, um, to Jews or people of color. Mm. He, he, he wouldn't have, I mean, he was definitely against racist speech and criticized that, but whether he would have, whether he would have put that under the category of this should be prescribed, I don't know. But he did, what he didn't, what, what I think is really important is he didn't believe that your speech should be free of consequences. There's a line about Ezra Pound I really like where he goes, anti-Semitism is simply not the doctrine of a grown-up person and anyone who goes in for that kind of thing should take the consequences. <laughs> and that's a really important distinction because I think if you look at the kind of more, you know, spiked style libertarian you know, kind of hard line on freedom of speech, it spills, it goes beyond what the state does or even what institutions do and then goes into the realm of like the, the you know, the public. And it's sort of like, well, the public aren't allowed to have an opinion either. And so it's, it's essentially the argument seems to be that free speech means no freedom from pushback. And I think Orwell was pretty clear that if you say certain things... People have every right to be um, angry with you and for that to be held against you. The point with Ezra Pound, he was like, well, fine. It's fine to give him an award for his poetry if you're just talking about his poetry. But at the same time, you should also know that his politics were toxic. That's something where you, I, definitely, I definitely feel that my own opinions have been shaped by writing this book and by immersing myself in Orwell. Because there's just certain people that I just don't have any time for now. Yeah, like I've, I've to, to sort of take a tougher line on because it's just like you're dishonest and ideological and propagandistic, and it shows in your writing. And so, kind of, I'm not going to read you anymore or respect you. We're not going to ask you to name them. No. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that. Is there anything else you wanted this book to add into, like the cultural or political conversation? The way that I wanted to write it was not to be too didactic. And I know that there was like one reviewer who sort of thought that. You know, I just really missed the opportunity to sort of relate this to Trump. I don't think that was fair, though. It's in your opening and closing chapters. And I was just <laughs> baffled. I was like, well, you, you've not... Did you read the book? <laughs> it's like, have you... We haven't read it right. Yeah. You know, I literally said in the introduction, I'm not going to constantly go, does this remind you of oh, Trump? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, elbow, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and clearly that's what the person needed. They needed elbowing. Whereas... <laughs> in parentheses after every time they mentioned yeah. police ring sock like Whereas Trump. <laughs> Somebody else recently said, oh, I just get it on every page. There's some observation he makes, which feels sort of like chillingly relevant. And that's because I was writing very, during, obviously during this awful political time. And I think a lot of people have a lot of sort of anger and gloom over politics and the discourse and, you know, and not just confined to one sort of source. So for me, I could take quite a lot of solace in, I would find a certain Orwell quote mm. Or a certain, or a quote by somebody else, you know, one of his contemporaries. And I was thinking, oh, this resonates. And I want to put this, this is why there's a lot of, there is a lot of quotation in the, in the book. Because I wanted this to sort of resonate and I wanted people to have a, a longer perspective. Because I think there's also a, there's a problem now where particularly a lot of younger people think that almost sort of awareness of a lot of political issues is a, is a sort of recent invention and that there was just like that there's history where everything was problematic and nobody cared <laughs> about like But now there's hashtags so we can keep track of them yeah. all. And now, thank God, in like the post Tumblr era, you know, people are being called out and stuff. And obviously there is much more awareness than there used to be. But there was these moral 
issues, you know, art versus artists. You read Orwell's Dali essay. Mm. It's like I quoted that in a piece on Michael Jackson recently because mm. it's still like a really, really good way of thinking about it. Um, and so I wanted to kind of bring like a lot of the, the sort of the sort of thinking from the 30s and 40s to now and go, well, look, these are things that people were worried about then. And there's a lot of the same things that we're worried about now and that things are not, the world is not so dramatically different. And also took some comfort in the fact that it was worse. Yes. The mm. things feel very bad now. <laughs> You're literally talking about, you know, well, it's wrestling with what do you do when Stalin and Hitler have created this entirely new for, form of, you know, high tech tyranny, oppressing and murdering at will and then teaming up with the Nazi-Soviet pact to form like the Second World War. And, and, and by comparison, you can look and go, okay, Brexit's bad, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not that bad. And I, I thought it would, because it, it helped me seeing Orwell and some of his contemporaries like wrestling with these problems about how, how, how do you find a way forward? How are you, how can you be decent? How can you be honest? How can you be aware of your own biases and hypocrisies and try and address them all all this stuff i just found it i found incredibly useful and so i wanted to to just create a lens where the reader could see echoes and kind of sort of you know hints of the present day throughout without me really having to you know doctor the evidence mm. or, or like kind of put my thumb on the scales mm. it's just like well this is what saying the david bowie stuff was really good I, I know idea about that did you know that going in because um looking at your wall it looks like you are a bowie fan mm. or was that something that you were delighted to find out as you researched well I, i'm obsessed with diamond dogs and i'd written oh you are already yeah. i'd written a thing for q about diamond dogs and I'd, i was obsessed with the kind of mad 70s politics and the way that bowie's sort of cocaine inflamed brain yeah i think you give he started doing cocaine some months before that and it completely changed him or something like that yeah. or just like even made a even worse version of himself but at the same time 70s politics britain particularly was getting quite overheated and paranoid and so it's kind of weird that, that there's a sort of overlap and you think okay right well of course so that i realized would be the way to tell the story of sort of 1984 in the 70s what i didn't realize was just what Diamond Dog's relationship with 1984 was, because most books about Bowie, um, even very good ones, they sort of go, well, here are the, here are the 1984 songs, but they're not really about the book. They just take mm. titles. Um, and then here are the songs that have nothing to do with it. And then I would, I would really examining the lyrics, having obviously read the book so many times <laughs> at this point that it was just in my head. And I would spot certain lines and go, oh, my God, that's a reference to, to, you know, a particular line in the novel. And so the fact, the idea that he sort of was remixed the novel. I mean, Orwell's been written about a lot. Uh, Bowie's been written about a lot. And so if you can find a kind of path through these people's careers and through these sort of stories where you can actually come up with stuff that you haven't read elsewhere, that's really exciting because it's, the bar is quite high. There's mm -hmm. like an amazing sort of scholarship. And even you can just spot a couple of things and go, oh, right. And I think that's only if you're coming to that album fully all welled up. Mm. 
<laughs> can you just with your Orwell glasses on, you can see every kind of possible reference. I feel like you're constantly Orwelled up and constantly have your Orwell glasses <laughs> yeah, on yeah. for the last couple of years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just quite good because it's a, it's a real privilege because obviously it fades after, you know, well, that's it. a few years after you've done a book or whatever, you, you, you don't have that. But at the moment, it's sort of, it's all there. Now that it's all there and you have it constantly in your mind, are you seeing other inherent benefits to the dystopian genre now that you've been immersed in like the definitive dystopian book do you mean benefits of it now yeah because there's, yeah. there's a glut of dystopian fiction yeah. being written about recently i think i think it's made me read it differently knowing that it was a form that began really for its for first few decades it was all about just making political arguments and of mm. course it doesn't seem as politicized now I mean, it, it, and it isn't you can write there are many types of dystopia which aren't very political at all but they were all really arguments and you you basically start with you know edward bellamy and then william morris argues with bellamy and wells argues with bellamy and morris and then ian forster and Aldous huxley argue with um wells and then orwell argues with wells <laughs> and huxley and and so this is just um, this um, everybody it's a form in which everybody has read the other key books which I think is quite unusual. Like, I don't know if you're a horror writer or a detective story writer is necessarily going to be au fait with, with all of the same books because mm. they're such huge sprawling genres now. Whereas at that, at that point it was like, you were, you were totally up on mm. what, what dystopias were. And so I do think that they reveal, they're great at revealing the anxieties of the, the time. And even something which is, is quite light on politics, like hunger games. Mm. It's like, okay, well, it's talking about a kind of decadent yeah. entertainment-based dictatorship in the same way as like Idiocracy, the mm. Mike Judge movie. Mm. Um, whereas if you look at, say, Never Let Me Go by Ishiguro, that's very much more about sort of about science and it's a very English dystopia and it's the way in which people would just let these things happen very passively and sort of not make a fuss. So... Every, every dystopia I'm sort of reading, even going back to stuff that I was very familiar with, like Brief of Vendetta or The Handmaid's Tale, almost by using 1984 as a yardstick, I'm like, hey, what do they take? What did they, what did they introduce? What did they depart from? What were they trying to say about their time? Because 1984 is powerful, is what it is, because it was written in the late 1940s. Yeah. And so there's no point. Anybody that, even somebody who tries to do the most kind of slavish homage to... 1984 is going to is going to basically introduce the ideas and anxieties of their own time, and so it is really exciting because you can pick up any dystopian novel from any era and find something particularly revealing. I just think in your own time, you know, necessarily it doesn't seem as historically interesting if it's happening to you right now. Mm. Whereas you look at one with some hindsight and you go, "Oh my god, okay, yeah. this is a this is you know this is obviously there's AIDS anxiety in this one, or this is all about." fear of the atom bomb at a particular point in time. So it's a brilliantly kind of historically rooted genre, even if it then becomes seen as prophetic or timeless. It's like, well, it's, it may be, but it's at the same time, it's, it's so rooted in the, the, the time it was created and in the personality of the author. And thankfully, you know, we know a lot about Orwell's personality. Do you think we'll ever get utopias? Again, well, maybe they were kind of gone by the time 84 mm. was written because of World War II, it kind of wiped them off, but they never came back as a genre. There's there's just certain certain forms, certain literary forms where we've just moved on too much. But I know that, I know Frank Cottrell Boyce, um, 
has said that he worries that dystopias, that if kids are only reading dystopias, all they're thinking about is bad things to be avoided and not good things to work towards. Yeah. yeah. What a better society would look like. Mm. Uh, but I think it's very difficult because a lot of the utopias, I mean, I don't know what the most widely read utopia would be now because mm. a lot of them, they, they don't read very well because they're programs. They're just basically explaining the perfect world of that author. Two people yeah. walking around while well, one of the, one of them asking questions like, but how does <laughs> work? Yeah. Well, yeah, how does this work? Yeah. yeah. And then someone going, well, funny you should ask that. This is how it works. So it's quite a kind of a nerd genre. Yeah. Um, and then dystopia sort of, because there's no, there's nothing at stake. Yeah. And sort of dystopias, obviously they introduce this kind yeah. of like, it's oh Jesus conflict. Christ, you know, yeah. there's this dictate, how are we possibly going to escape or bring yeah, yeah. down the regime? Yeah. Um, as you can see why it's so dynamic. But I also get Frank Cottrell Voice's point that if there is a way of just sort of reintroducing some of the utopian spirit in certain kind of books. And I think, oh, sorry, I'm forgetting. Um, there's that one, Ursula K. K. Le Guin, one from the 70s. Another one where she sort of like, there were, there were some attempts at basically doing kind of like feminist sci-fi utopias okay. in the 70s. Um, and I think the reason they worked is because they had all this new, this, this sort of optimistic energy mm. of a new movement. And I think maybe that's, that's what you need. That maybe if there was a utopia written now, it probably wouldn't be written by a white guy. But could you not have like a trans uh, utopia in which you would present the kind of the most sort of um, optimistic celebratory version of a kind of like world beyond these sort of gender categories? So I think I think you, you could you could do that. You spoke at the at the start about the political timely motivations for the book coming out now. Mm. Um, we've spoken to a couple of authors who also had similar political timely motivations sure. for writing about what's happening now, but through all these different lenses. So yeah. we had um, Jamie Bartlett talking about the people versus tech. So he was analyzing, again, the current situation through the lens of a relationship with technology. And then Sam Conniff with um, Be More Pirate, again, looking at what's pirates. happening today, but through the lens of pirates. Right. And now we have like this, where like a 70 year old dystopian novel, like again, being used as a lens. And these are just a couple of examples of a glut of of similar literature that's coming out around this time. Do you think, and this might seem like a bit of a leap or a bit contrived, but we'll look back on this period much in the same way like World War II gave birth to a lot of leaps in like aviation and technology mm. and stuff, that some good will come out of the bad. This will have been the you know site of some deeper, broader understandings of what's been happening. I mean, I hope so, but what I, what I don't understand what I'm never quite sure about is, is often, yes, good things can follow these, these really bad turbulent periods and they, they do end. But whether the period was necessary, I don't know. I mean, wars are different because they have such huge effects in terms of advancing technology and economies and shifts of power. It's, it's really sort of complicated. But, I, you know, I used to read, a few years ago, I would read, 10, 15, I'd read about 70s politics, British 70s politics, and it was just, you know, just mayhem. And just thought, Gee, this is like appalling. How <laughs> do people kind of just sort of get through the day? Mm. Um, and it was just weird that they were still listening to like, you know, Slade, you know, and watching Are You Being Served while you had like terrorism and the three-day week and mm. rumours of a military coup. And mm. it's like, this is crazy. Yeah, but you had Morecambe and Wise, so it was fine. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But the coexistence of those things, and I just thought, what a crazy period that was. And now when I was writing about the 70s, 
in this way. I was like, oh, right, no, I get this now. This, this seems, I'm living through a time which people will look back and read a history and go, this is crazy. Like what happened? Mm. There was an MP murdered and then there was this, you know, this referendum. And then- They wanted the Brexit, but they didn't know how to Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then there was like, a, you know, in a, you know, there was a, a terrorist attack at a pop concert. Mm. And then the, the, this tower just went up in flames. And, the, you know, like mm. it's it's a really- I'm not even mentioning the fellow that got elected president of the United States. Right. <laughs> it's, it's like a really heavy- time and i suppose one has to try and be sort of optimistic and think okay it's making people it's certainly making people more active and making people more engaged and you hope that it would kind of move people towards finding solutions it just i don't know whether that's happening now i don't know whether it's happening i don't i don't think the labor party's in a in a mess and you would obviously look to them for a way out um, and that just seems to be partly in a mess because of some of the really bad habits of the of the left that don't seem to have changed since Orwell's time. It's just they're not it's not Stalin anymore, but there still seems to be just yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of problems there. So it's sort of it, what I find hard is I don't know where to turn to for the for the for the sort of the optimism of that. And you know I literally can't read. I can read one book about climate change a year because. It's too depressing. <laughs> Psychologically, I don't know how people like manage to just read lots and lots of books about that. But that seems to be the thing if we're talking about when people say, how will we look back? It's like, well, that's the question. And then if you think of the kind of political obstacles, the short termism, just this sort of ugly anti-science hmm. rhetoric of, I mean, the Republicans are, by comparison, Conservative Party, Conservative Party generally is like, yes, there's climate change. Hmm. I'm not going to do much about it. But yeah, okay, we probably should. But the Republicans are just like, no, there's no need. This will this will hurt the fossil fuel industry. So that that I suppose is what is is sort of looms over everything. Yeah. It's really hard to sort of go, oh well, something good will come out of it because unless that thing first and foremost is a is massive concerted action on climate, I, then I don't I don't really know whether the other stuff is going to make much difference. Not hopeful. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, wasn't your book depressing? It's like, no, I didn't, I, I didn't find it depressing at all. Yeah. But any book about climate change just crushes me yeah. for like the next few days. I, I think this book is, is relatively hopeful. Hello, uh, this is Richie from the future. I'm sitting here doing the edit and I just realized that the next question we're about to ask uh, it could be a little bit confusing or hard to follow unless you've read the book. So I just thought I'd explain it now just so you have all the context you need. So at the end of the book, Winston Smith, the protagonist, is captured by the top police and brought to Room 101 to be tortured and reconditioned and just kind of purged of any thoughts or emotions that weren't in line with the with the party. And part of this reconditioning slash brainwashing process was just emphasising that the party have control over objective truth. So if the party says 2 plus 2 equals 5, then 2 plus 2 equals 5. And this is something which is impressed upon uh, Winston during during his time in Room 101. Then if we jump forward to the very end of the book, there is a moment where Winston uh, writes down 2 plus 2 equals. And in some versions of the book, it, it says 2 plus 2 equals 5. And in some other versions of the book, it says 2 plus 2 equals, and it's left blank. So two very different interpretations. So 2 plus 2 equals 5 being Winston's full, complete brainwashing and, and acceptance of, of the party's power. And two plus two equals blank, being more of a hopeful, optimistic kind of up in the air ending. And that's what we're about to get into now. The final 
the, the near the end, I think it's in the final chapter you address, there was a publishing error in one of the editions of 1984 mm. where it's two plus two equals. Yeah. But in the, the edition I have, which is pretty recent, um, it's two plus two equals five. Right. So for how long was the p- potential hopeful ending there? So and at some point in either late 49 or early 1950, this disappeared, uh, this five at the end of the equation. And it remained that way in the Penguin editions anyway, because obviously there's editions all the way around the world, but um, until Peter Davison, this great Orwell scholar who put together complete works, discovered it, and I believe alerted Penguin in 87. So you get this curious thing, which of course everyone who's read it in the last 30 odd years, that's that's not even an issue. Whereas for Michael Radford, who was adapting it for his movie in 1984, Mm. he didn't have it. So in, in the movie, there's a question mark there. And when I told him that this was completely unexplained and probably an error of some description, he was just like, well, you, you know, but you can't. Because <laughs> it changes it completely. Yeah, there's like, zero hope at the end of that book. He's grown up. you put this in it. Yeah, he's grown up with and made a film. Yeah, with a fragment of hope. Based on the idea that this was all well going, well, maybe. Mm. Um, well, it's not there. <laughs> but it's not, But then it's not, it's sort of not explained. There's, a, there's, a, there's an Australian Orwell expert called, I think, Dennis Cooper. And he sort of thinks that Orwell himself requested this change, you know, sort of very shortly before he died. I don't think that doesn't... You need to have proof to make a claim. Well, like you that. need to have proof and it, and it just doesn't add up to me. Mm. But then the other explanations don't add up either because it's the weird why of all the typos that you could have. Would it be Bye. so significant? Maybe yeah. it was the editor just couldn't take it. <laughs> There is an yeah. over that a compositor in a in a printing factory yeah. couldn't take it. Like it's one of those <laughs> just a monumental <laughs> shift in this whole story. Yeah. But like every explanation is not quite it's not quite legit. It's yeah. like trying to explain the appendix. I'm not going to go into that now, but you know, I do a bit mm. on the appendix theory. And every explanation for the appendix, there isn't every explanation has some problem with it. But what's interesting about the missing five and the appendix theory is that they both allow people to find hope if they want it i don't think the book needs it but i think it's wonderful that those kind of controversies allow readers to bring their own really their own kind of their personalities and their own sort of sense of like how much despair can you take do you need to feel that there is hope and the argument that i make is like you can if you want but for Orwell's purposes he was meant what he was really trying to say is by the time we get to this book it is too late. Yeah. And if he was allowing some kind of like Katniss Everdeen <laughs> uprising, uprising <laughs> that would dilute the message of the book. Cause it'd be like, Oh, well, you know, if you do allow totalitarianism to say cold, don't worry because you can still bring it down. And I think the point of the book was to go, no, it's too late. Personally, I'm going to choose that the book actually ends with him going two plus two is four and he pulls out bow and arrow and takes a Katniss Everdeen style <laughs> rebellion to, the, to Ingsoc. And that's, that's what I'm going to keep because the alternative is too crushing for me. Fair enough. <laughs> too delicate. But thank you so much. This has been this has been great, Dorian. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, if people want to hear more from Dorian, you've got a podcast for Maniacs. Yes, it's about... So you're a glutton for punishment. You spend years just thinking about 1984 and then you do a podcast all about Brexit. I'd say 1984 was a relief compared to weekly Brexit talk. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It was because it was all stuff that had, al- that had already happened. Yeah. Someone else's problem in the past. You knew what you knew what had happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so I host Romaniacs most weeks. Um, which because is- I'm sure you're going to be delighted to talk about um, Boris Johnson over the next couple of months. 
Oh, I can't get into uh, that now. <laughs> <laughs> Put that can of worms away, Steve. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's plenty of there's there's lots of material, but again, it's like it's it's an outlet. You got to have an outlet. Oh, yeah. If I didn't have like you know books or podcasts or journalism. I would just just be so angry all the time. <laughs> just living in the woods shouting. <laughs> yeah. That actually sounds pretty good now. <laughs> Let's go to some woods. Yeah, exactly. Thanks Thank you so much, much Dorian. Cheers. How, how do you think that went? I Bear th- in mind that we we're still recording this with our intro before we've gone to the interview. That was a fantastic interview. We can assume so, yes. Yes, and yeah. in the spirit of 1984, no matter what you just heard, it was a great interview. <gasps> oh, that's so great. Is that on your notes? That's very good, no, Steve. No, I just, <laughs> I just came up with that right now. Oh, wow. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Um, thank you, Dorian. That's great. Uh, I'm not sure if we plugged it in the interview, because again, it hasn't happened yet, but you should check out his podcast, as well as his book. The podcast is great. For me, uh, Yeah, this whole selling point is no bullshit Brexit talk, which is yeah. what it is. It's and great. if you can't guess by the title, they're pro-remain. I hadn't gone to that part yet. Twist. <laughs> no, they're actually very much probably remain. Um, Give us money. Mm-mm-mm. That's it. We're, we may not. Okay, what are you going to do for the people next time? I'm not time? doing It's your turn. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Okay, so if we get any donations, I, what do I have to do next we're just, time? Look, you know what? If we get any sort of donations, we just say thank you. We don't, we don't have to do what song and dance about turning into performing monkeys for these people. Mm, okay, I'll turn into a performing monkey for these people. <laughs> I will literally become a simian. And yeah, so I don't know how many donations I'll need to for go the surgery. The for the surgery, <laughs> it'll have to be invented first of all. Maybe yeah. I'll know. I, that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That's clearly ridiculous. So no, we'll hire Andy Circus. He'll teach me how to motion capture myself into an ape. That's what makes sense. Andy Circus can motion capture anything. When you see him in the Marvel movies and he just looks like Andy Circus, he's motion capturing, <laughs> and they're just putting a model of Andy Circus over top of Andy Circus. Well, you know, right now it's that Vaz over there—that's actually Andy Circus motion capturing himself. No way, Vaz, yeah. So method, so method. He's <laughs> great. Love Andy Circus. Uh, money, uh, rate and review us. That's that usual stuff Please. that goes a long way to help us. Um, iTunes, iTunes, yes. Oh, it's Apple, not iTunes. Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, um, Apple iTunes Podcasts. Yeah. Um, or just go to Tim Cook's house and just shout through his window what you think of the podcast and then somehow it finds its way onto the website who's Tim Cook? CEO of Apple oh, it's new, not Steve Jobs anymore new, oh new Steve Jobs yeah <laughs> it's not that new it's been a couple of years yeah yeah. I'll get there eventually you will um, and what else is there Tim Cook has always been in charge of Apple <laughs> um uh, Twitter. I'm sorry. I actually am hungover. <laughs> Twitter, <laughs> Adwan Politics on okay, Twitter. Before on we go and do the interview that everyone's already listened to, what activity are we going to have to do to try and shake that out of you? I will just go get coffee and food and some fresh air. Okay. We'll, yeah. We'll walk by a dog park and that usually does it for yeah. me. <laughs> um, okay, we're going to go do that. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you, Dorian, again. Let's go get coffee. Okay, bye. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network.